The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts i used to have so many men how this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich men Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I, I just honestly feel like we need to have our own education programs for our children because this is all by design. Us not knowing our history and not understanding who we are and where we came from is by design. What's up, everybody? I'm Gammy, and this is Positively Gam. Every week I have raw, in-depth conversations with inspirational people pushing for change on everything from aging, relationships, politics, wellness, to the current issues facing the Black community. So welcome, everybody. In this episode, we're going to be discussing a really interesting and timely book entitled Black History Saved My Life by Ernest Krim III. I had a friend that sent this book to me, and just the title alone really struck me. I really, really believe so strongly that it is the lack of knowledge that we have about our true history that keeps us so divided as a community and as a culture, and that is by design. Joining me on the podcast is John Lucas and Ernest Krim. John Lucas is an accomplished entertainment artist and president of the nonprofit organization Step Into the Light. 
Ernest is a high school teacher, activist, and author of the book, Black History Saved My Life, which is the topic of our discussion. So I want to start with you, John, because John and I met at a stepping event. I am, I'm not from Chicago, but I love to Chicago step. And that's where I, I met John and we became very good friends. You actually were the one that sent me the book. Yes. You sent me the book that sent me Ernest's book. So how did you and Ernest meet? The, the nonprofit that I have forming in my head and I was like, I need to get back to this school. You know, I just got sick of going on social media and hearing about classmates having to bury their children. They got shot, you know, or hearing that classmate's son is going to jail to do a bid, whatever. And so I was like, let me go back and just see what I can do. So I still have connections there. I know a wonderful lady there that works in the principal's office, who's one of the secretaries. Her name is Miss Ella Jenkins. And uh, I've known her for a long time. And so I was just telling her what I'm trying to do. And she was like, you need to meet Ernest Krim. And and I, the, as, she wasn't the first person to tell me that, but she was like, I'm going to see if he's available. And my other friend who also works at the school, she walked me down to his room. And that's where we first met and got a chance to talk and chat. And, and, you know, just got a chance to get a feel for each other and what we were about. And I started to, he actually has started a Black student union at the high school, which I think is awesome because, you know, usually Black student unions start on the collegiate level where, you know, where Black kids can come together and talk about common issues. And so he would have me come in and allow me to come in and talk to the kids about my experiences and get a chance to connect with them so that those children could see my face. And so when he said, hey, I have this book, you know, I was more than happy to pass it along because he's doing wonderful things, not just for the children, but for the community in which they live in and try to navigate. Ernest, so tell the listeners a little about your background and why you decided to write the book. Yeah, so I'm from the south side of Chicago, born in the late 80s, and I was uh, raised by parents who were very aware. And I, I say I was blessed because I had parents who, whenever I asked a question, whenever I had an inquiry, they always answered my question. I was that why, 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 why kid? And they always had a response. And if they didn't have a response, they led me in that direction to find the answer. And this is before Google. So that's a big deal. <laughs> we had the encyclopedias, you know, in the basement. It was from the 60s, though. Don't get it twisted. But we still had a chance to read through them. Being caught in two worlds, really, on the South Side, like I saw my friends who were, you know, caught up in the street life. But then I also had parents in the family who was like, that's not going to be you. Like you going to college, we ain't going to be able to get you all the Jordans. We ain't going to be able to get you everything you want, but we're going to get you, get, give you access to all the knowledge you need. And throughout my life, I began to realize that I always had this question about our condition as black people, but I wasn't really connecting the dots yet. And I guess my inquiry started with, for one, not being able to be friends with a pair of twins, white friends that I had that because they didn't want to come to our neighborhood. And then that snowballed into being nine years old and asking my mom why we had never had a black president. And then she told me that would be me. And then it became a, a situation where I have a, a black friend from Nigeria who's kicked out of the Mount Greenwood neighborhood where I went to school because they were spray painting. Go back to Africa inwards. So as you, this is all before like the age of 11. So I just kept having this reoccurring theme. And my mom and dad were always in my life. Like I wanted to go to Denny's one time as the readers will find out. And my mom was like, no, we ain't going because they don't serve black people. <laughs> you know. So th this all comes to a culmination in 2016 when my wife and I 
or at a uh, festival in Chicago. Okay, hold on, hold on. I don't want to get to that yet. You have a motto, Ernest. Black children will perform better if they have pride in their history. Yes, and I would like to preface this by saying that we already know these things to be true. Because, for example, I saw a study today by Harvard, and they said the reason why there are so many black people in prison is because dun dun dun, dun systemic racism. So we know these things already. My life is a testament. John's life is a testament. Your life is a testament too, and, I'm, and your kids are as well. So this Harvard study says that when black children are taught to have racial pride. They perform better academically because they are aware of the hurdles they may come in contact with. And also, to me, it gives them pride and understanding that it's not their fault that these hurdles exist, but they exist. And this is how you work your way around them or dismantle them completely. Uh, I want to talk about some of the passages in the book that really resonated with me. And I want to start with a, a quote that you had in the book that we all, that most Black people are familiar with. And that is Malcolm X's question is, who taught you how to hate yourself? And that kind of, in, in your book, that leads you into the discussion about where this all began with slavery. Talk to us a little bit about that. And, you know, I have to say I, Malcolm X was probably to me the most important historical figure because I think, you know, he taught me how to value myself as a person. And what I discuss in that book is just really how I believe that we as African-Americans, as black people in this country, we're taught systemically to hate ourselves. Like we're at a place now where we're not technically on the plantation, but everything that we're taught and fed and bombarded with allows us to stay there mentally. And if you don't intervene with the child, a black child, then they're going to fall within that system just regularly. That's how it was supposed to be set up. If you think about the, the areas in which we populate the most in this system, which I talk about in the book, we're overrepresented in the prison population. <laughs> we're overrepresented in, in, in sports, basketball, football, rapping, you know, but we don't have ownership in these companies. You know, so my thing is, if we if they, uh, quote, allowed us to get into these systems without any barriers anymore, you know, shout out to Jackie Robinson, Bill Russell and people like that. And we completely dominated it. Then what would happen if we knew what we could actually be outside of that? Because that's the trick they play. It's, we were talking about this yesterday, John, the fact that the, we can only go as far as we exposed to. And because we always see the rappers on TV or we see the athletes on TV, we don't understand that the person sitting up in that box office, in the box suite, signing the check has way more money than the whole team right. combined. And feel free to jump in, John. You sit, I see you shaking your head. Yeah, I think that it's important. One thing that I always try to tell kids, but especially their parents, a child's gaze is only as far as their parents, their family, and the people in their community if they, the people in the community, actually want to give the information. If the community's gaze is limited, then the child's gaze is going to be limited. And so, and, and unfortunately, one problem we do have is that we don't share information with one another. A lot of times there are just simple, you know, things that you think as menial that could change the life of someone else if they just had that tidbit of information or encouragement. So I think we need to really work to get the information to our youth so that to broaden their kind of spectrum, if you will, on what could be possible and show up so that they can see that it is possible. And, you know, kids believe what they see. Okay, so this brings us to another quote I want to read from the book, Ernest, and that is, 
on page 180, you say, if history has taught us anything, it's that racist whites will continue their destructive tendencies. So what must change is our approach. We must change our perception of ourselves. Are you beautiful to yourself? Do you love your skin, your nose, your lips, your hips? Do you hate your august, volutinous, parentheses, nappy hair? What do you see when you look in the mirror? Because I feel like how can we expect to be treated with dignity and, and respect if we don't truly believe that we deserve it? And so do the kids really and honestly trust that they are worthy? I would answer that adamantly with a no. And again, it goes back to the program. And this is also is connected to the Malcolm X quote you brought up earlier. When we grow up, everything we hear about black is negative. Think about the scene in the Malcolm X movie. Think about the fact that we're not speaking our first language. So when you see the connotation of what black is in the English dictionary, it always means something negative. Whereas when we're talking about ancient Egypt or Kemet, it meant something glorious and regal. So when we, we when we crack jokes as kids, you know, we talking, oh, you dark, you as dark as this, your, your wide nose, your big lips, your, your bogus hair. Everything that we use to demean each other is in relation and <laughs> directly to our natural African aesthetic. And I think that's something that, again, when we're pushing our kids through the school system, if we don't intervene, like I was saying before, then they're, that's all they're going to believe. Our kids are saying, you know, the pledge every day, even on Zoom virtual calls, but they're not making a pledge to themselves. They're not making a pledge to their blackness. They're not seeing positive attributes. And again, for me, if we don't have something that's, I think from right now in this point in history, what we understand is that we have to have some type of at uh, homeschooling system set up that's in conjunction with what they learn. So it's like, yo, what did you learn in history class today? Oh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Let me tell you what he did right after yeah, that. Though. Yeah, that's <laughs> so know? true. That's, that's so true because, you know, I have to use the Jewish culture as an example. You know, the Jewish culture is not putting the responsibility on public education or any private school to teach their children their history and their religion, you know. And I, I just honestly feel like we need to have our own education programs for our children, whether it's because this is all by design, us not knowing our history and not understanding who we are and where we came from is by design, you know, and we've got to be responsible for taking control over the information that goes into our kids' heads. Exactly. John? I was going to say yeah. that it's also, it's before you even start to school, just to have a comment, just a regular conversation with your child. I think a lot of these children's, their minds are not being stretched, if you will, by their own parents or their family members. I think one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of Black parents make is believing that because their child has a Black parents and Black siblings, um, they must love Black people automatically. And that is not the case. Just because you grew up in a Black family doesn't mean you love Black people because the society and, and the all the imagery and so on and so forth and the media has taught you not to love your people before you even realize it. You know, so make sure, you know, making sure that we're able to just have a, a honest dialogue with our children. I think this book is so great because a lot of our history that we have here, a lot of times was not talked about by our, our seniors, if you will. 
because with it became trauma and they didn't want to talk about it because they would relive the trauma. But unfortunately, we get the short end of the stick because we don't get our history. But in order for us to get it, they have to relive that trauma. And so it's always that conflict there. A lot of our great grandparents and grandparents wouldn't tell us about how they had to flee to get out of the South to make it north for a better life because it was traumatic for them. But what happens is you get a group of you get a generation of kids that don't appreciate what's done for them to get them where they are. So true. So true. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... Actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Ernest, you drafted a lesson that you describe as the lesson of your career. And it was around the Trayvon Martin murder. Yeah. So, you know, what's, what's interesting about that whole experience was now when I look in hindsight, I devoted five chapters to the trauma that I dealt with surrounding black men and women being killed. And this book, I released it a couple months before this whole incident happened with Black Lives Matter. So what I was talking about in that situation right there with Trayvon Martin, it was one of the first times that story had been reached on a global scale. It was something, even though we didn't have video, it was something that everybody heard about. We were all watching the NBA All-Star game and then we all heard the call and we heard the screams and the gunshots. And I just remember that was like my first or second year teaching, having to go to work the next day with that weight on me was something I just couldn't really fathom. The only other time I had heard something like that or seen something similar was with the Oscar Grant situation and I was still in college. So we can go to class and talk about it. So for me, I don't care what I have planned today. My mindset, my kid's mindset is the most important thing right now. And again, that's something that we don't often discuss in school. We have physical education, but not mental education. So I went there and it was like a spur of the moment thing. Maybe that's why I think I'm able to talk about things on the drop of a dime because I just said, what can I do (laughs) to make this a real to them. So I grabbed the box and I, I typed up a sheet real quick. And it was like, basically, you know, you know what it, what it means to be Trayvon Martin, what it means to be a black young man, what it means to be a black young lady. And it was a powerful demonstration. They put these in the box and it was something that they were able to embrace. But I always remember that student of mine adamantly against it because he's like, well, look, we, you know, our dudes dying every day in the streets. Why does this matter to me? Why should I care? And I distinctively remember hearing that because, for one, it did make me even question that because we're hearing about all the death in Chicago. There was a Darion Albert situation, a Blair Holt situation. Some of these caught on camera with the CTA bus and everything. And I really had to think about it. And then, you know, you hear that all the time now. What about black on black crime? And I had to come to the conclusion to let him know it's an entire system, young man. What you see happen to Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman is the same reason why you all can get killed in your neighborhood and nobody cares. The same reason why guns and drugs are allowed to be funneled into your neighborhood without anybody caring. But just to wrap it up and bring it back around, I just felt that they had to see something and feel something to let them know what they are and what they aren't. Because when they put up those uh, gun range pictures of Trayvon Martin with a hoodie and they put up a, a, a picture of him uh, grimacing like a child having fun as if that was something bad or they tried to talk about him with marijuana uses to demonize him it's this age-old pattern of trying to criminalize us to justify their pernicious activity so 
I felt like that was like my the beginning of me saying, you know what? Whenever we have something like this happen, we're talking about it right now. The lesson will happen eventually. But what was the actual lesson? What did you actually have them do? So they they had a it was a sheet of paper and they had to write down, you know, I am Trayvon Martin. Then they put a, a, a bunch of positive adjectives under that. So it was something that they can see. You know, it's something I do even now when I'm speaking. It's who are you actually? The media says you're this. Yeah, but you are like Trayvon Martin. You are actually this. And just because that man wanted to follow you home and just because that person thought you were a criminal, that is not you are not the archetype. You don't actually fit the profile. And they were actually able to put this in a box. And it was something that they can see as you take it out afterwards. You uh, are someone who actually is outside of that box, that paradigm and that stereotype. That lesson about the Trayvon Martin, I think about what's going on in in the world today. And I feel like I could be wrong, but I feel like it's something that still applies today. Do you still use that in the classroom today? You're 100 percent accurate in the fact that it's still relevant. We structured it quite, quite a bit now because everything, of course, is, is digital and virtual right now. But it's still something I do. And because I speak to a lot of kids now in the area and across the country, I'll do something similar with that activity, especially if I'm working with a smaller group. And I guess the most disheartening thing is the fact that it is very relevant. And I think we can see it now more than ever because and I've had to stop myself. I don't watch those videos anymore because it does something to my psyche. But again, if our kids are always seeing this and then they're watching, you know, violent movies, playing violent video games. Again, juxtapose that to what the media portrays us as athletes and, and criminals. And we're all and, and in a sense, we're often choosing that same thing on our own will. So it, it's definitely relevant, unfortunately, but I'm hoping that it it impacts us in a way that allows us to research our history more and portray ourselves differently too. And what's even more sad is that now look at all the different names that you can insert into that lesson besides Trayvon Martin. You can use George Floyd. You can use any number of names. So it's just really disheartening. And that's that's still a small percentage of all, of all you know, and that's I think that's what a lot of people also don't realize. That could be like 10 to 5 to 10% of what what has really transpired with police brutality. We only know those because it was captured on film. Because it was captured on film, absolutely. So now I want to move on to discuss the hate crime that you and your wife were victims of. Tell us a little bit about that, Ernest. And you say that actually went viral in the media. Can you describe the incident for us? Yeah. So just to provide some context, it was four years ago, 2016. My wife and I had just gotten back from Jamaica. And it was like around the time of of July, there had been a lot of incidents just now. There was Philando Castile, who was shot on Facebook Live. There was Elton Sterling, who was murdered for selling uh, bootleg CDs in, in Louisiana. So we wanted to take our mind off of that hysteria. And then we also knew in the back of our head that we had to go back to school as soon as teachers. So July 30th, we go to this festival in Chicago and uh, we're having a great time. It's music, it's, you know, a lot of people, it's food, all of that. So Towards the end of the event, we're deciding to head out. And I noticed there was an open beanbag game that's called Cornhole. So usually at a function like this, you can't really find that station being open. So I I realized that we walked over there, noticed I only had one beanbag. So that was the issue, of course. So I looked to my left and then I noticed there's a group of four people, two black and two white, and they had about 15 of them. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, they grabbed it because nobody else was there. But now we're here. Maybe they'll offer them. So we're looking for some other ones and they didn't do anything. 
a few minutes later somebody throws one it goes very far my wife and I are looking at each other because it went so far it was in the other area where people were sitting and they didn't grab it after about five or six minutes so my wife goes over there to grab it and our mindset is we all paid to get in here we didn't bring this game so you didn't grip you didn't grab it so it's ours you know so she grabs it and as soon as she comes back over in the area there's a white lady from that group who it like approaches us as, as if she was about to attack us instantly she walks over there and she starts screaming at us and and saying that you could have just asked to play and it was a very hostile tone same thing we get on our like our students they'll talk back to some teachers like because they, they sense an attitude so i sense the attitude my wife is standing right beside me on my left hand side and i'm like no you're not getting it back that's disrespectful then she, <laughs> then she calls my wife a hoe and that's just like you went up another level now you you really tripping you done lost your mind and, and then at, at that point, her black friend started to get closer to us and she's calling over for the police. So again, in my mind, Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, all of these people. And she's calling the cops over. And then she begins to call us the N-word over and over. You're acting like a bunch of niggers. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, did she really just call us that over this? So I, I know my rights. I know somebody you can't actually say that, unfortunately, depending on the tone. So I knew it wasn't against the law. So my mindset was as a black person, really, my defense is recording it to document and show the world who this person is so we can hopefully avoid her in all aspects of life. So I take out my phone. She slaps it out my hand. <laughs> We're yelling at each other. I pick it up. Luckily, it fell in the grass and I stopped it to press record again. And she's going crazy. And I'm like, give me your name. Give me everything. Because you, you you obviously don't care that it's on camera. And again, her black friends are coming closer. Her white friends all the way in the back. Then walk towards us. And then she turns and she spits on us. And that was the beginning of the end. And you actually were able to take this to court, were you not? So what happened was after that event, not to, to spoil it too much for the reader, but so I, I take it, I get him, I go in my car. We're about to leave. We're just delirious at this point because we don't understand what just happened. I found out that I had it on uh, camera. So I put the videos together, posted it online. By the time we had got home about an hour away, 40,000 views, 50,000 views. We had all the information. That was by now October 1st, 2016. Filed a police report. She gets arrested within two months, two and a half months or whatever. And that started the long process. But everything I got came from people online, black, white, Hispanic, who came together. And they also even knew her from high school. Several of these people who said she was just as negative, just as toxic and racist in the past. And they were glad to help me out. So we took it to court October 2017. Yep. You know, it's interesting that she was there with other black people who Sat and let it happen. did not intervene. Uh, that is troubling. That that is troubling, John. What what did you want to say about that? I see you there shaking your head. That's when he was when he said on his story. That's the first thing that you know, as he says, and her black friends. And in my head, I'm like, what kind of black friends does she have that's going to let her? You know, first and foremost, I wouldn't even if I had a friend that was just acting crazy in public, I would pull him to the side and be like, you need to get your life right fast but on top of that for to get belligerent enough to call racial slurs and then to actually spit on someone for her, to allow her to spit on someone that is one of your people again it goes to that psyche of this is supposedly your friend they just spat on someone of your race and called them derogatory things regarding your race 
but you just sit and you just sat and stood there. So what does that what does it say just about the psyche of a lot of black people and how they handle things? You know, I think sometimes they probably were just as traumatized as Ernest, and you know, and just didn't know what to do. And it also brings up like just the disconnect that we have as a community. That's the only term I I can think of because I thought about this last night. Like, what is the word that I'm looking for? And I can just come up with disconnect. But is it is there something? Is there another term that you guys can think of? Well, yeah, it's absolute assimilation. I believe looking at those two individuals now in hindsight, because again, I, I'm somebody who I'm there for us regardless. So I just couldn't believe it. And you can tell in my voice, but I think that some of us believe that by hanging with people of another race, which is fine. But I think sometimes we lose ourselves with that if you're not careful. Like to me, if you don't know who you are, what do you bring into the table? So for them, they probably thought by kicking it with her, they weren't quote unquote black anymore. And, you know, what's, what really appalled me was the black brother because he was the only guy in that clique. So I'm I'm looking at him really the whole I'm looking like, dude, are you going to do something? Are you going to say something? And then the lady on the side, the black friend, she was like, it didn't bother. It doesn't bother me. That means that you're trying to remove yourself from this experience. I don't care how you talk, how you look, whatever. That's fine. But you are still black in this country. It's beautiful. But to them, it's not always that way. And for them to make that excuse to me shows, like you said, that disconnect. And I, I steer away from calling people, you know, derogatory names like that. But it's to me, you're selling out your culture to try to acquiesce to somebody else's culture that doesn't really want you. Well, and the problem that we that we run into is that we forget that from a very young age, us as black individuals in America are taught and programmed to be white adjacent. We're not taught to be black adjacent. We're taught to be white adjacent. So we, in, 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 in retrospect, you can't be surprised that these black people allow this white person to do what she did because we are programmed to be white adjacent. Describe what you mean by white adjacent. Adhering to European standards in order to navigate through society safely and efficiently. And we're taught at a very young age to speak a certain way, to act a certain way, you know, not to be threatening to to white individuals. You know, of course, and a lot of it was done because our parents wanted us to be safe and they wanted us to excel. But in in the same at the same time, a lot of times they stunted our growth as black people learning to love ourselves in the process. And and this brings up the the topic that you describe, Ernest, as racial battle fatigue, which some people may just describe as PTSD. But no matter what the label is, it, it creates a slippery slope when it comes to mental health in the Black community. Talk to us a little bit about what you mean by that. Definitely. And I got that term from my, my brother, uh, Felipe Matthews. And of course, shout out to Dr. Joy DeGruy as well, post-traumatic slave syndrome. It's something it's something that discusses how as we traverse through American society, we often deal with racism, microaggressions, overt aggressions constantly throughout our life. Like we're actually, we're fighting. As soon as you walk out the door, you're fighting, whether it be mentally or whether it be something that's actually happening to you. And you just become so depressed to a level where it's, I can't do anything to survive or get by. If you think about the black experience, whether you live in the suburbs, whether you live in a black urban area, whatever, you're, you're dealing with it. You're dealing with 
constantly being outside i promise you like when i used to go for a jog in my suburban area right now in the back of my mind was always is something gonna happen to me or it was always i need to stay in my subdivision and i'm going to or if when i'm running i'm going to stay on the busy road because if i go down somebody else's just because i want to see something different they might say i never seen that dude let me call somebody and then that fear gets confirmed with the mod arbory and again racial battle fatigue what can i do where can i go it's almost something that again uh, leads to learn helplessness why, why should i even try and the problem with this is it's not that we don't all deal with it our kids don't realize they're dealing with it it's like you're getting hit and you're getting knocked into a corner boxing and you can't see where the punch is coming from now if you've got mike tyson in front of me if i can see him at least i can run from it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so take all of that and put on top of it the lack of jobs you know what i mean now the pandemic you know, so there's the, the stress just from daily life in the black community. And, and, and that's why I think it's so important for us to know our history, because I'm at a point now, unfortunately, when I see these stories happen again, I don't want to say numb because I do feel it, but I'm not surprised. It's like you said before, like, uh, one of the quotes in the book, like I understand these patterns. I don't expect this this country to operate differently when they've adapted in every way slavery so-called ends and transitions to sharecropping you know uh jim crow so-called ends and transitions to mass incarceration and now we're dealing with something else on a different level so it's just something that we have to understand these patterns so it's not that we won't feel bad but it will say look this is going to happen here so we need to prepare for the inevitability and also at the same time build ourselves and build our community up and that's what, you know, that's why I think the work that both of you are doing is just so important. So important. Why do you feel like it's important to mentor our Black youth? Both of you. John, let's start with you. We live in a society now where it is easy to be this individual. You know, we're in a very individualist society. It can be an oxymoron because we live this society where Everybody is for themselves and they talk about how great I'm doing until something bad happens. And then they reach for the community and say, where is the community? But they spend their whole life saying I'm an individual. So I don't need the community until you need them. And so I think that we need to start looking back at the community as a whole and saying, where can I chip in? I know that it can be overwhelming because there's so much to do. You, you, and you end up becoming paralyzed uh, with the paradox of choice. There are so many choices that you could take that you just sit and look at all of them. It's like watching, like turning on Netflix and scrolling through for 45 minutes, trying to figure out what you're going to watch and then just turning it off. Let me just let me just interject my feeling in this, though, because I feel almost like there's so much devastation in the community. There's so much going on that you don't know where to begin. You don't know how to help. You don't know what you should be doing. Like you're just overwhelmed because there's just, you feel like things are just falling apart. Yes. I think what you, what we have to do is to just say, what knowledge do I have that I can share? Everybody knows something, you know, you don't have to know everything. You just have to know something and share it. You know, share your expertise, do work on this little thing. You know, I don't have all the answers, but what I do know about, I know about dance. I know how it connects people. I know how people react to it and how it's therapy. I also know now that I've lived in New York and I've 
dealt, you know, wheeled and dealed and dealt with people from all different walks of life and education levels that our Black children, specifically our descendants of Black freedmen, a lot of them have the grades to go to top schools and are not sent. So I'm, I'm saying, hey, I'm going in to let these children know you are worthy to go to these schools and you should be applying to them because it could be the difference between a child or not a child, but a, a young adult at 22 years old making $50,000 coming out with a, a college degree or $80,000. And with that $80,000, there's a lot more they can do for their community. And I think John is a perfect example of what we mean by mentoring, because so when we met Again, this, this man flew in like he flew in. He wasn't getting paid. <laughs> he flew in. We met. We set up a date and you could hear a pin drop like we're talking 30, 40 kids all. And he's just he's sitting down just talking. It's like, you know, it's like the, it's like an elder in a community. Everybody's gathered around and they were hanging on to every single word. So it became something where it's like, OK, I'm going to have you come back again. So then we started pulling kids. We gave them you know, permission slips, pulled them out of class. Now we're going to talk to them during the school day to, to, to meet a different target group. And it became just a, a thing where it's like now school is remote. He's in New York. We're meeting over Zoom with our Black Student Union. He wanted to come in uh, with those meetings as well. So it was just something where you can see the difference he made. And he's hunting down these kids. He's reaching out to them. He's talking to them on his own personal time. And that's a testament to what we mean when it says give back to where you're from, because it truly takes a village. What were you working on, John, before the pandemic? I was just, I, last November, I had finally brought to fruition my nonprofit called Step Into the Light. And when I first started that program, it was to create a steppers program for Black youth to take 100 Black kids in my city of Joliet, Illinois, and teach them to dance with one another again. That is one of uh, the things that we lost, unfortunately, to hip hop. You know, when hip hop began to usher in, it diffused the idea of partnered hand dancing, you know, and it started to phase it on out. And so I realized that this dance, number one, is healing to one another. These kids need to connect because there is a social disconnect because of social media. They don't know how to interact with one another. And they and so when you shake hands, when you hug one another and when you dance with one another, it brings more of a community. But then COVID happened. There went that out the window. And so then I started my program Next Level, where my job is to make sure that Black youth in this city, specifically the descendants of Black freedmen, are making, are given counsel, if you will, and guidance when it's time to choose careers and choose higher education. Make sure that they have access to apprenticeships and internships and, and all that is available because a lot of times they just don't know what's out there. So I was going to say, not only are you educating the kids, but you have to educate the parents, too, because they just don't have the information. You really have to educate the parents first, because a lot of parents don't understand how uh, bright their child is sometimes. It's, it's, I've seen time and time again where parents will work day and night to provide everything for their child, and their child will have straight A's and B's, high 3.4-point grade point average, and then just send them to any school or even a junior college, not realizing that they could go to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Howard University, Florida A&M you know, some of the top schools across the country that are ready and waiting for them, but their the kids are not being sent. Ernest, how do you feel like since the pandemic, how have you been able to maintain your relationships with your students? How is that working for you having to teach online? 
admittedly it's been very difficult it's actually a couple different phases the first time was in march of course when everything shut down and we were struggling to get our kids you know show up and turn in work and we weren't really sure what that zoom schedule was going to look like and now was the, the new school year has started and we're like four weeks in we have a consistent schedule and i will say this you just never know what you're being prepared for because i have been involved this um mentoring group this, this accountability group i should say and we would get up on zoom every morning breathe university and we would talk about our goals and things like that and i have been doing that since 2018 so now when i'm on zoom every morning with these kids for four or five hours it was really nothing for me to switch in terms of getting them engaged finding different ways to connect, you know, playing music through my speaker. I'm allowing them to pick the music that we play. I got, I, you know, I have a bell that I ring every time the class starts. So I got my whole little setup here. <laughs> so now, now I will say this. Now the issue is I bring the energy, but the issue is you miss out on that connection. I can't high five a kid. I can't dab them. There are certain kids that still don't want to show their face. So I'm finding different ways to be creative. I'm telling kids, okay, let's play a game. Everybody screen off. Now, if you can relate to this, turn your screen on. They get caught up and they're like, oh, snap, got to cut it back off. So just different ways like that and being able to conference with them helps. But I will say this, it's an empty feeling because at the end of the day, you're not able to have that conversation with them as they leave. You're not able to see your former kids in the hallway. And when that last bell uh, rings metaphorically, you're just sitting in your office like, okay, and I've shared this with John a lot. This man, it's rough. It's rough. It's, it's, it's really rough. And I will say the only benefit is you do get a little more time in the morning and, you, and your day ends early. But with that said, it adds another uh, weapon to our repertoire because if we can reach kids this way, to me, we can do anything as a community. And, you know, and I, I really have to give both of you kudos you know, for the work that you're doing. I really do because it is so important. Like, you know, I don't want to sound corny, but the kids are our future, like for real, you know, and we've got to take care of them. And I want you to go back a little bit, Ernest, just and talk about how, because when you first entered college, you, you didn't go to college to become a teacher. So how did that become your path? Yeah. So I was, so actually I was thinking about this yesterday. The reason why I didn't fully succumb to wanting to be an athlete, although for a big part of my life, I did want to be a basketball player. I always had the parallel narrative to me was you're going to college. My parents said, you're going to college, you're going to college. So whether you play sports or whatever, you're going to school. So once those hoop dreams fizzled, I still know I was going, knew I was going to school, but it was like, what am I about to pick? What am I going to study? Now, it just so happens my mom is an educator, you know, you know, my aunt is an educator. So I have a, I come from a lineage of people who taught and, and believed in education, but I still wasn't thinking about it. My mindset was I'm the friend people call to vent and I just listen. I say, yeah, uh-huh. I understand. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm like, maybe I will be a good psychologist. You know, I didn't know, you know, and, and for lack of better, for, I would say like Dr. Phil didn't look like me, but I saw him on TV. So I'm like, hey, that might work. So let me be a psychologist. So I went to school first semester. I'm doing horrible. I'm too involved and, in, you know, I'm going to parties. I'm playing basketball still, kicking it with my friends. We playing video games, having tournaments. I mean, it's just everything. And then when I have a test, I look at my notes. Like literally I look at them. I read them over and I say, I'm ready. <laughs> now that worked in high school, but I take a test. And I promise you, in my math class, my grade got lower every single test. And then, and then and she will put your grade like at the top so you can see yourself just flunking. And then in my psychology class, which is my major, 
I wasn't doing well either. And I was meeting with the professor. So after I did bad, I was on probation. I started to reevaluate some things. The disappointment, I have more disappointment in myself than my family did. In some ways, I feel like they knew I would bounce back, but I didn't know if I believed it, honestly. So I began to think about what can I do? So I dropped my major. I started taking history, black history courses out of curiosity. And from I promise you, from that moment, I fell in love because every question I had that my parents couldn't necessarily answer or the encyclopedia couldn't, my professor was saying it, Professor Lang, Professor Abdul Al-Kaman. And it was like, wow, this is it. I need to be the person standing in front of them on that stage telling kids that you are great. You come from royalty. And this is what happened to us. This was the this is the, the, how they uh, intervened in our progress. But this is what we need to do. And from that moment, I was sold. And I felt like the best way for me to give back to my community was to share information. And that's just teaching. I mean, and you could be an educator in various forms, like even having a podcast, as you see. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. 
I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Do you want to add to that? Because at the end of the day, I just feel, you know, let's get back to what this, what for me, what the gist of the book was for me was the importance of knowing and understanding our Black history, knowing and understanding that we don't know who we are. We don't know about this. And that's by design. You know, we, we were brought over here from all over the place. And because all of that history, all we get in school, all we got in school was American history that started with slavery. But that's not Black history. Black history does not start with slavery. And that is so important in developing an understanding and a sense of pride in who we are. And I just feel like once we have that, that will help, you know, guide us you know, into living our lives differently. And if we understand who we are as a people, as a culture, and it is not a slave. That's not all Black history is. It's not. And that's part of the problem, because even here in America, a lot of American culture is Black culture because we created it and it was taken from us. So getting a child to know, yes, about Black history, what happened before slavery, but also to have a full, truthful understanding of what happened while we were here in North America, because there's a lot that happened here that they don't talk about and that we are not aware of. You know, we are made to believe in and perceived as the Black people that don't have a culture, but we very much have a culture. This culture, our culture built and our innovation and our resilience and our artistry built this country. All American music that was made in this America in America derives from black music created by us. You know, actually me and Mr. Krim were just talking about the fact that most people black and white will look at the banjo and say, oh, they play that in country music, but the banjo is from Africa. That is an African instrument that is played in country music. We help create that music. You know, even though we don't really associate it. And that is part of our American history as Black people. So 
a lot, all that has been kept from us and it's time to um, awaken all that information, if you will. And when kids start to understand it and know it, they have the foundation to stand on, to go out into the world with their chest out and to reach high. So I want to go back just a little bit, just because we were talking about education and and mentoring. And since COVID, since the pandemic, you know, the disparity in the education system is so prevalent. So now you have you know, parents trying to to teach their students at home, teach their kids at home, kids not having laptops. You want to speak on that, Ernest, like how difficult that must be for particularly the African-American community that, you know, don't have the equipment and, you know, that they need to make to make it happen. Definitely. I I think what COVID did more than anything is it it exposed America even more than it was already being exposed. When everything had to stop, it was almost like that burglar in the night and all of a sudden the lights come on and he's just sitting there. Oh, you got me. I've been taking everything out your pocket. You know, I've been taking everything out your room, all your jewelry. It's like these again from 1619, from 1492 up until this point. I think people have to really understand that these there are laws. This whole system is built on making us believe that we are inferior. No other group of people like all these traps are it's on, we're on the track and all the traps are set up down your path on the track, your path and your path only. Not to say other groups haven't had certain hurdles, but we're talking every decade, every president. They're, they're putting up certain barriers to stop us from progressing. And yet and still we persevere. But still, there's a system. And we're only 13, 14, 15 percent of the population. So it's very difficult. We're able to see now with COVID the health disparities. Now, let's talk about the school system and what they're feeding our kids. That's not top of the line food. And then when they leave, where are they going to the corner store, the chicken shop, the Yero place? You know, that they're not, there aren't places in our neighborhood that are actually feeding us. And we're talking spiritually, mentally, all of that type of stuff. We're talking about a school system that has not adapted since the early 1900s. If you look at a picture of schooling in like 1920, Compared to now, kids are sitting down, you know, kids are every 50 minutes or 45 minutes like that. That's unbearable. I can't. Because <laughs> I, I tell my students when we doing Zoom, I tell my students, I got to stand up for a second. I don't know how y'all do it all day. You know, we've had issues where even in Chicago, where I'm from, where the previous mayor, Rahm Emanuel, closed 50 schools in, in about a year. So, like, these disparities were there, but people were, eh, because we don't care that much as a society as a whole until we see the end result, until we see the tumor. But the cancer has been simmering. We have old books. When I was student teaching, I was using economics books from the 80s, and I started student teaching in 2010. <laughs> like when we started remote learning, all of these kids had to go pick up tablets because they don't always have access to these things in their neighborhood, in their schools. So to me, COVID has exposed us and we cannot, we have to make sure that we keep the cover off of it now, keep the light on the burglar and let's make sure that we replace these uh, institutions with something that's actually equitable. Because the disparity was already there, particularly between public school and private school. And now it's just worse. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about it a little bit, but even if you don't have a big platform, what are the ways that you can still contribute besides giving monetarily? That's a great question. And again, I'm I'm going to circle back to a conversation that I had with John. I'm sure he's going to chime in. But I believe that I think that sometimes we create hurdles that aren't even there in terms of giving back. So anybody can sign up for a local nonprofit organization to mentor somebody. You can yourself contact your old school. 
let me just say, let me just say that I did try to do that. I did not do well. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why I'm asking, what are the other ways that we can contribute? Because my experience with mentoring did not go well. You know, I just, I just, I just found out my, my, my sister was in a mentoring program and I tried to participate in that. And I just, I didn't do well with it. I'm not somebody who's very patient and, you know, you know, I'm not necessarily a kid friendly kind of person. And these were like preteen teenagers. Uh, Yeah. yeah, And and I didn't do well. You know, you you also have to know what your, what your abilities, your capabilities and limitations are. Because everything is not for you. Exactly. Exactly. You have to know where you fit. So even if you might not do well one-on-one, but you might be called in on like a panel of three or four people, you know, to talk to a group and just talk about your experiences. You might do well in that setting. You know, what I think to understand is that your story is actually 20 times more valuable than any money that you give. You know, people need to hear people. These kids need to hear stories from people that look like them. So because children believe what they see. And so when they see someone that has made it out and made something of themselves and they talk about, you know, the ins and outs and, you know, mistakes they made and in opportunities they were given that they took, well, then they say it's possible for me. Good point. That was This was such a great conversation, really. Thank you guys so much. Is there any last comments that you want to make before I move on to the last part of this podcast? Show up. Put your shoes on and show up. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Ernest? Education begins at home. We have to take 100% accountability because we cannot expect them to do better when we've seen the past. We've seen the rap sheet over the course of over 400 years. So now let's do what we got to do. There you go. So it's now time for my favorite segment, Wouldn't You Like to Know, where you answer three rapid fire questions with the first phrase that comes to your mind. Okay, we're going to start with you, John. What books are you currently reading? What books? I'm actually currently reading Black History Saved My Life. And the next book I need to read is Cast, which is by the next book by Isabel Wilkerson. That is on my list. What about you, Ernest? Of course, I'm reading Black History Saved My Life. And by the way, everybody, the book is available on Amazon. And truly speaking, I I really, this is a book that I recommend that Black families read, particularly if you have preteens and teenagers. It's a book that you can actually read with your child because it is really important. Go ahead. I just got finished reading Stamped. I'm also reading that nonviolent stuff will get you killed which provides a counter narrative to the nonviolent protests. It just gives you a more nuanced view of how we were able to gain liberation throughout American history. Interesting. Cool. Okay. John, what's a motto you live by? We all play the fool and we will play different fools throughout our lifetime. But the goal is never to play the same fool twice. Boy, you better come for it. There we go. I love that. Say that again. We all play the fool 
and we will play different types of fools throughout our lifetime. But the goal is never to play the same fool twice. Ernest, what's the motto you live by? That's a hard act to follow. But for me, it is if you don't know who you are, anyone can name you. And if anyone can name you, your answer to anything. I like that, too. That's a good one. Wow. Yeah. Y'all are on point today. Okay. All right. So the last and final question, John, what's one thing you want to get off your chest? One thing that I want to get off my chest, vote during the local elections, like you vote during the the huge presidential elections. People do not understand that, you know, there's actually a lot of miseducation. A lot of our people feel that because they feel that the presidential election is rigged, that all voting is rigged because of the Electoral College and so on and so forth. But elections don't have anything to do with the electoral college it is by popular vote and so we need people to show up and i think it is very um disheartening that people can talk all day about the president and of course the upper realm of politics but they don't know who the the people the names of the people on their city council or their school board you know that are making decisions that affect their lives directly every day show your asses up to the local elector Ernest, one thing you want to get off your chest. Yeah, I would definitely echo that. We have to turn up. In our county where we both live, it's a 20% turnout. Actually, it's probably a little bit less than that. I think it might be between 10 and 20%. And besides that, I would just say we have to vote for ourselves every day. So in between voting every two years, every four years or six years for the Senate, we have to make sure that we have the same expectations for ourselves in our household, in our community. And again, more than any other time in history, we have to really understand the importance of knowing who we are, knowing our place and black people. If you listen to this, you are amazing. You are regal. You are bold. You are beautiful. And we can get through this and we will get through this. We just have to believe it and keep on pushing. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Once again, this was absolutely a pleasure. John and Ernest, before we wrap up, please tell my listeners where they can find you on social media and anything you have, you want to highlight that's coming up for either one of you. Okay, I'll start. You can find me on Instagram and my IG account is at sign J-O-H-N-L-U-C-A-S number four real. So John Lucas for real. And you can also check out my nonprofit website, which is www.step letter N number two, the light.com. That is S T E P letter N number two, the light.com. And for myself, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MRCRAM3. I'm on Facebook at MRCRAM with three eyes for the third. You can also visit my website, ErnestCram.com. You can also find me on a local PBS, a Divided We Fall show. Uh, I think that'd be a great show for people to watch for the upcoming election and showing people from uh, the left and the right coming together, having conversations. And you can hopefully find me at your local school or I guess local Zoom because I like to call myself a, a black history advocate, you know, a black history preacher, maybe. But you can find me at all those places. <laughs> so you have a, a program coming up on PBS? I was a cast member on the show called Divided We Fall. We recorded it like last year, but January 2019. And it's about us having conversations um, with people on the other side of the aisle. So we can probably find that on demand. You can Google it and it'll pop up. It's been shown in different cities since uh, April. Okay, yeah. awesome. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you once again to my guests, 
John Lucas and Ernest Krim III. Just want to remind you that Black History Saved My Life is available on Amazon.com. And for my takeaways from this episode, I want to read another passage from Ernest's book. And to me, this is probably the passage that resonated the very most to me after having read the entire book. The birthplace of all mankind, Africa. Make sure they are proud of it so they don't associate it with poverty, starving children, and AIDS. Teach them that they are equal, not inferior, to all human beings, regardless of color. Teach them to love their bronze-colored skin and gloriously nappy hair because it is a gift from God, a result of our ability to adapt biologically. Teach them to love one another and let them know that they are entitled to greatness, the type of greatness that does not begin or end with high-end fashion or other material items. If you're white, teach your children that they aren't better than anybody and that they aren't entitled to something just because of their skin color. Teach them about a heritage and ancestry that extends beyond the label of whiteness. Teach them their European history and how its roots extend to African civilization. They'll learn about the supposed greatness of America by proxy as soon as they walk into a school, turn on the TV, or attend a sporting event. So teach them about the repulsive history of this country that lives in the shadows, the history that made Hitler proud to cite America as an inspiration for his treatment of the Jews. I want to see America evolve to being better than this, but we must be honest and admit that the country has not made it to that point yet. Will it ever? So we understand why we don't know our true history. That is all by design. But now it's our responsibility to learn it for ourselves and pass it on. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to rate and review the episode. Follow me on my Instagram at Gammy Norris to share with me your thoughts on the episode. I'm here, I'm talking, and I'm listening. And as always, folks, stay grateful. Positively Gam is produced by Westbrook Audio. Executive producers, Adrian Banfield-Norris, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Amanda Brown, and Fallon Jethro. Co-executive producer, Sim Hoti. Associate producer, Erica Ron and Crystal Devon. Editor and mixer, Calvin Bailiff. Positively Gam is in partnership with Art19. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? 
I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich man Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.